All right, well, this morning, uh, we're going to go ahead and continue our, our, uh, our look at the book of Romans. So today we're looking at the book of Romans chapter 8, and I've titled it Delivered and Victorious, because this morning we're going to learn about uh, uh, what it means to be, to be saved, to have Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We're going to look at, as we are freed from the law, but actually uh, we live according to the law of, of grace. I want to start with a story. <clears throat> Uh, Dr. Bill Bright of Campus Crusade for Christ told, tells the story of a famous oil field called the Yates Pool. It says, during the Depression, this field was a sheep ranch owned by a man named Yates. Mr. Yates wasn't able to make enough on his ranch operation to pay the principal and interest on the mortgage, so he was in danger of losing his ranch. With little money for clothes or food, his family, like many others, had to live on government subsidy. Day after day, as he grazed his sheep over those rolling West Texas hills, he was no doubt greatly troubled about how he would pay his bills. Then a seismographic crew from an oil company came into the area and told him there might be oil on his land. They asked permission to drill a wildcat well, and he signed a lease contract. At 1,115 feet, they struck a huge oil reserve. The first well came in at 80,000 barrels a day. Many subsequent wells were more than twice as large. In fact, 30 years after the discovery, a government test on one of the wells showed it still had the potential flow of 125,000 barrels of oil a day. And Mr. Yates owned it all. The day he purchased the land, he had received the oil and mineral rights, yet he had been living on relief, a multimillionaire living in poverty. The problem? He didn't know the oil was there, even though he owned it. You know, and the same thing happens today in the lives of many Christians. We're looking for relief. We're looking for, for uh, some sort of, of breakthrough in our lives. And all the while, we have Jesus Christ inside of us. It's always there. We just sometimes forget or don't know it. You know, in chapter 7, we learned of the legal qualifications of the law of grace as well as the conflict of the two natures. Remember, talk, Paul was talking about uh, before he was saved, there was the, the nature inside of him that wanted to serve God, but he couldn't because we're born broken in this world. And then it talks about how Jesus rectifies the problem of the conflicting natures by giving us a new spirit inside of us. We no longer have a spirit conflicting with, with one another, but we actually have the, the spirit and mind of Christ inside of us. But in chapter 8, we're going to go on and look into to what it means to be adopted into the family of Christ, what that means for us as believers, as well as our victory in Christ. We're going to begin to, to take a look at, so that we don't fall into the, to the same situation that Mr. Yates fell, having this great wealth inside of us, but not knowing it's there. We're going to begin to, to look and, and get a revelation of what we actually have inside of us. Amen. <clears throat> so the first scripture we're going to look at is Romans 8, 1 through 4. It says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You know, this idea right here, there is now, there is therefore now no condemnation, is an idea that we have to, to get a hold of, get a grip of in our heart. So we need to have not just a, a head knowledge of that, not that we read the page and see that on, on paper it says that, that we're not condemned, but you need to get a hold of that in your heart and understand that, that uh, in order to walk in victory, we need to know that we are not condemned for those, those actions that we've done. And if we make a mistake, that we are forgiving in Christ Jesus. 
And it's not to say that, that we can do whatever we want you know, under this idea that we're forgiven for everything. Paul's already dealt with that as we've looked at the book of Romans. But, but if, we, if we do mess up, if we do make a mistake, then there is no condemnation for us. You know, many Christians walk around feeling guilty for, for the mistakes they've done. And what that does is it keeps your, your focus, your consciousness on your sin instead of on the finished work of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, many religion, religions are based entirely on what you've done. You know, if, if you do something bad, you know, you're only really forgiven if you feel really, really bad for it. Or if you, if you focus on it and just think about how bad you've done. If you, if you do all these things, then, then maybe you'll be forgiven. But that, the truth is that we already are forgiven in Christ and there is no condemnation. We also see that the, we've been set free from the law of sin and death. <clears throat> Death no longer has a hold on us, <clears throat> and it can't extract its requirement. Sin can't extract its requirement on us any longer, which is death, because that requirement's already been paid in Jesus Christ. You know what? The requirement is still there. The wages of sin is death, but it's already been paid. And like we talked about last week, none of us is going to pay the same bill over and over and over again. You know, you pay your phone bill. If they send you another one for the exact same month, you're going to be like, hey, wait a minute, I paid this already. I'm not paying it again. But so many times in our Christian lives, we keep trying to pay the same bill over and over and over again. I have to feel guilty enough. I have to feel bad enough. Or, you know, oh, man, man I messed up, so that means I've got to read my Bible twice as much. And we, we set forth this, this system of requirements that we have to make to, to make us feel better about ourselves. But when the truth is that Jesus Christ already paid that penalty for us and we can't pay it again we can't add anything to it there's nothing that we can do that is going to increase what jesus christ has done or it's going to make it better or somehow be a subsidization of what jesus christ has done we also see here that the law could only make us clean on the outside this is for the law could not do weak as it was through the flesh god did the law can only make you clean on the outside. You can look good on the outside. It's like taking that cup and washing the outside. It looks really good, but, but leaving just the nasty stuff on the inside, that crusted up milk when you take the last drink of water, it's, that's not a clean cup. And that's all the law does is washes the outside. I saw a picture on uh, Pinterest. This guy gets to the bottom of his coffee, and there's a spider that's as big around as the bottom of the cup. <laughs> that's not a clean cup. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe clean on the outside, but not the inside. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> oh. <clears throat> you know, the law only shows us how bad the problem really was. It finally points out how messed up things really are. But it can't do anything about it. It can't actually fix it. It tells us what we need to do to fix it and try as we might. Like we talked about in the conflict of the new natures, we we agree with the law, we see that it is good, and we're like, I agree, I want to do this, but without God, without Jesus in your heart, it's impossible to live that life. It's impossible to do it right, no matter how much you want to do it for. He says, I, Paul says, I agreed with the law of God, but the members of my body are subject to a different law, the law of sin and death. We also find that we can't fix our problem either. I know for many years of my life, I kept trying to do the right thing. I kept trying to be a, a good person. I kept trying to do these things, and I kept failing miserably. I'm terrible at being my own Savior. And I think we can all agree that you're terrible at being your own Savior as well. We can't live right enough to clean the inside. And even if we could, if we could live that perfect life, if we could live from here on out without ever making a mistake, 
and we, and we somehow could clean it out, we would just be left with a void. Because when you take all that stuff out, you have to fill it with something. It has to be filled with, with the Spirit of Jesus Christ living inside of you. It has to be filled with the Spirit of God inside of you. Otherwise, when you empty it out, the Scripture says that uh, when a demon leaves, he'll bring seven back more with him and find that the, the place that he left is, has been cleaned out and ready for more. And you'll actually be worse off than when you started. Lou Johnson, a 1965 World Series here from the Los Angeles Dodgers, uh, tried for 30 years to recover the championship ring that he lost to drug dealers in 1971. So he was, got caught up in drugs and alcohol, and he lost everything. And uh, he basically, his uniform, his glove, his bat, everything that he had from that amazing season, he sold for drugs. He lost it all. But when the Dodgers president, Bob Graziano learned that Johnson's World Series ring was about to be auctioned on the internet as he immediately wrote a check for $3,500 and brought the ring before any bids were posted. He says he did for Johnson what the former Dodger outfielder had been unable to do for himself. He says Johnson, 66, who has been drug-free for years and a Dodger community relations employee, wept when he was given the gold ring and said it felt like a piece of me has been reborn. You know, that manager did for him something that he could never do for himself. And this is, you know, we use this as an illustration, but this is just for, for something minor. It's a, it's a, it's a ring. It's, it's, you know what, without the ring, he still won the World Series. You know, it's not really, but he said he felt like a piece of him was returned. But now we're talking about something that's, that's life and death. A, a piece of us is returned, and we're made whole, and it's something that we could never do for ourselves. says that God did it, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. It says, Jesus became like us. As we looked at last week, that, that Jesus was the king that became a baby. He became flesh. He said he became in the likeness of sinful flesh. Not that Jesus became sinful flesh or that he was sinful, but he was born in a body like ours, minus the sin that we're all born with. And then it says that he came to give his perfect life for the once and for all offering to pay what we owed. You know, the requirement of sin is death, and he became that requirement for us. In 2 Corinthians 5.21 it says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You know, Jesus didn't become sinful, but, but like the sacrificial lamb of the Old Testament, what they would do is they would, they would lay a hand on this perfect unblemished lamb and it would represent the guilt of the nation being transferred onto that lamb. And that's, that's what Jesus did as an offering for sin. Actually, in, in 2 Corinthians 5.20 it says that he became sin on our behalf. Is, is all of our guilt, all of our sinful nature was, was transferred to him and he paid the price. Basically, he became responsible for all of what we had done and all of what we were. He paid that price for us. And God didn't just brush the law aside when he sent Jesus. You know, the law, it wasn't like God said, you know what? The law was a pretty good idea. didn't really work out. We're just going to brush it aside and start something new. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 5.18, that says, Until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it is accomplished. The truth is the law is still very much in effect. The requirements are very much in effect. The only difference is, is that the requirement of the law was fulfilled in us because of Jesus. 
our requirement has been fulfilled because of the death, his death for us. He paid the price and made it so that it could be filled in us. It says, those of us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If you walk according to the Spirit, it means you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and believing on him, you're walking according to the Spirit. The experiment. <laughs> the Spirit, that means your requirement has been fulfilled. If you're saved, your requirement has been fulfilled. The requirement of death has been paid by Jesus for you. Amen. In Romans 5, 8, 5-8, it says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. For it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So here we begin to see there's really two types of people in this world. There are those who have the Spirit, which is, the, which is Christians, those who have accepted Jesus Christ into their life and have been given a brand new Spirit inside of them. And those, there are those that are left to their own devices, left on their own. See, if you're a Christian, your mind is set on the Spirit and the things of God. But those who are not of the Spirit are concerned only with their flesh. You know, selfishness is ingrained in us as a result of the fall. We're always worried about self-preservation and what we can do with ourselves and what can be better for us and what stuff can we have. And it's always about ourselves. And in the men's meeting, we talked about love being one of the fruits of the Spirit and why that was important. And we were talking about that the reason why that's a big deal is because if it's not done out of love, if it's not done out of a, a Spirit of God, a Spirit working inside of you, even things that are good, good works, can can really just be done for selfish reasons. You know, you're like, oh man, we, we, we gave something to somebody and, and we bought them this. But you didn't do it for them. You did it so people could go, hey, look at him. Look what he bought them. He's so generous. He's so nice. What an awesome guy he is. Even good things can be done from selfish motives. But with the Spirit of God inside of us, we keep our mind on the, on the things of God and we can do it from, from love, which is one of the fruits of the Spirit. We can actually impart that, not from selfish motives, but the only time we can do it, not from selfish motives, because God has changed us on the inside. Next, we see that there's only two outcomes. First outcome is where the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. You know, there's nothing that can change that. If you're of the Spirit, you have life and peace. If you're of this world, of the flesh, you're going to have death. You know, the, the world thinks that we can make things better by education or by doing certain things. In the 1990s, a group of Washington children participated in an eight-year anti-smoking campaign program. Can you imagine setting up an eight-year study, waiting for the results for that long? It says the results were not impressive. Of the group who went through the program... 25.4% now smoke regularly. And of the control group, those who did not participate in the study, 25.7% now smoke regularly. The education program didn't do anything. You know, we, we think that we can change people's lives by, by teaching them. And, 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 and don't get me wrong, I'm all for education. And I'm all for teaching people. But our problem is not that we're not smart enough. Our problem is that we're broken on the inside and we can't please God. We can't live in, a, in that kind of way without a change being made inside of us. You know, like I said, we can't expect non-Christians to live like Christians because they're not. They can't. They're broken. They need a change inside of them. So we don't need new ideas or new techniques 
But we need a new power within us to change that bad behavior within us. We need something that can, that can change what's going on inside of us. When you're broken on the inside, you're going to live a broken life. You do what you are. If you're of the flesh, you're going to do things of the flesh. But if you're of the Spirit, you will live according to the Spirit. And then we find out it's even worse because those whose mind are set on the flesh are actually hostile towards God. And truthfully, we see this all the time, especially in this world. It's become even more belligerent as, as people who are, who are not saved are just so against Christianity and God and everything that He supports and does. We find out that it's... <clears throat> the reason being is that they do not subject themselves to the law of God, but they're not even able to do so. Without that change inside of you, without what Jesus Christ did to make that change for you, you can't serve God. You can't not be hostile towards God. And then finally we see that those who are of the flesh cannot please God. In Isaiah 64, 6, it says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our inequities like the wind take us away. And I think we've talked about us before, this, this all of our, our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment is, is actually menstrual rags is what it's talking about. It's... it's they're, they're, it's like trash. It's like nothing. I mean, all of the things that we do without God, without, without Jesus Christ inside of us, the things that we do on our own are, are worth nothing. We can't please God without a changed heart and a changed spirit. Romans 8, 9 through 11, it says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Don't you like those howevers? You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. I love stuff like this because you read that last scripture and you're like, man, it's starting to get a little bit down. He starts talking about, he starts talking objectively about two different types of people, those who are of the flesh and those who are of the spirit. And if we're not careful, we can go, man, am I, am I sure that I'm of the spirit? And we can start getting worried. But Paul says, however, and now instead of talking objectively about two people groups, he's talking to you and I, the readers, the Christians who are reading this letter. He says, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. You know, this, this if indeed right here, I don't know, where's my notes on that? If indeed the Spirit of, life, the spirit of uh, God dwells in you is if you're saved. That's the only, the only difference is have you accepted Jesus Christ in your heart or have you not? Do you believe that he died for you or do you not? You are not of the flesh, but you are in the Spirit. But it says, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. The requirements to belong to Christ is to have the Spirit of Christ inside of you, to be saved, to have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And one thing I want to make clear is I noticed I said he is your Lord and Savior. This is a personal thing. Many people say he was the Lord and Savior, but is he your Lord and Savior? Now people will say, I believe in God. And Jesus said the, the demons believe and tremble. But is he your Savior? 
It says, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. You know what? Death is alive and well in this world. We can look around us and, and uh, should Jesus tarry, we will, uh, we will all die. That's, that's just a fact of life. And sin is still having an effect on this world. The last enemy to put on subjection is death. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 through 26, it says, He must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Currently, right now, death is running rampant from in this world. The world belongs to Satan. The, the Bible says that Satan is the ruler of this world. But the truth is that even though our body is dead because of sin. The spirit is alive because of righteousness. We are, we are alive on the inside. We have eternal life. We're eternal beings that will, will live on forever. But then it goes on to say even more, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. The good news is that in the resurrection, we will be risen up just like he was. We'll have new bodies that will not die, that do not decay, that do not get old. Death is beaten, and it has no sting. In Romans 8, 12-13, it says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if the Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Let us be clear that we are under an obligation, just not... To the flesh, to live according to the flesh. We're under an obligation to live according to the Spirit, to let Jesus Christ live through us. Let His life shine through us. And it says, For if you live according to the flesh, you must die. And He's actually talking to Christians here. If you're saved and you have the Spirit of life inside of you, and you live according to the flesh, you must die. And that's actually kind of a, a bad translation. The word is, is uh, literally translated. You are going to die. Basically what he's saying is, is if you live according to the flesh, you, just, you look like someone that's not saved. He's not talking about spiritual death. He's not talking about going, going to hell. But what he's saying is that, that all that there is for you, if you live according to the flesh as a Christian, is, is death. I mean, your life is nothing. You're just going to live until you die. That's all there is for you. You'll look like a sinner if you live according to the flesh. There'll be no difference when people look at your life. And the worst part is, is you don't have to, or the best part, depending on how you look at it. You know, when, when somebody lives that way as a Christian, but they're still living in the world, they're, they're still living like the old man who, who was put to death, but they keep letting that person creep back up. The, the worst part is, is, is they don't have to. They don't have to. But the best part is they don't have to. They can make a change. Because the Bible says that you're not under obligation anymore to live according to the flesh. As soon as you accept Jesus Christ inside of you, you become, become of the Spirit. You're not under obligation to the flesh anymore. The, that second nature that used to tug at you and try to make you do bad things is, has been put away. It doesn't have to reign in your bodies anymore. It says... But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What is he saying here? He's saying that if it means to let the old man die, like I just said. 
by the Spirit, you put the, the old, putting to death the deeds of the body, that, that old man that used to live through your body that did the terrible things, that did all those sinful things. If you put him to death, set him aside, and, and begin to put on the new self and live in the righteousness that you've been given, live from the victory that you've been given in Jesus Christ. You push aside the old man, put on the new self. That's the only way that we can live. You know, there's many times you'll, you'll meet people that you used to know a long time ago and you tell them about your life and, and you're like, and that's not who you are. I know you. No, you knew who I was. That man is dead and gone. He's been pushed aside. By the Spirit, I'm putting to death the deeds of that body. And I will live in life through the, through the life of Jesus Christ through me. I'm a brand new man putting on the new self every single day. In Romans eight fourteen through 17, it says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. You know, we talk about freedom when we get saved. We are, are free in Christ. But being free doesn't mean you don't live by constraints. Matter of fact, the Bible says that all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. We are free in Christ, but we're still led by the Spirit of God. It's kind of like a person who's jumping out of an airplane with a parachute at 10,000 feet. And he says, you know what, today I think I want to be free from the parachute. I don't want to be constrained by the parachute while I'm jumping today. But the thing is, truthfully, he's subject to a greater law, the law of gravity. And as much as he wants to be free, there are certain things that are in place that are for our safety, that are for our well-being. There's, there's, you know, God leads us in a certain way and tries to keep us away from sin and these things, not to, to ruin our fun, but to actually keep us safe. You know, it's probably not a bad idea for or not a good idea for that guy to want freedom and take off his parachute. It's just going to result in death. In the same way in Christians' lives, when we say, oh no, we're, we're saved and we're not condemned, we, we have freedom to do whatever we want, it's just going to result in, in death for us when we live according to the flesh, like we just read. The truth is that, that God's moral laws, the, the way we're supposed to behave, what He's, what he's wanted for us, are, are there to... They're absolutely necessary to enjoy the exhilaration of re- real freedom. You know, if that, if that jumper wanted to, the, the parachute jumper wanted to, or skydiver, wanted to enjoy what he's doing, he has to wear the, the parachute. Otherwise, he's only going to enjoy it once. But living according to these constraints is different than slavery. It says, For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, which is what we were living when we were a slave to sin and death, but a spirit of adoptions as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. You know, this Abba, Father is actually uh, a term of endearment. It's, it's kind of like when your kids come up to you and they cry out, Daddy, Daddy. You know, it's not just for anybody to call you. It's, it's for your kids, and it says that we are adopted into the family of Jesus Christ. And this is different than slavery, because slavery is, is when you're forced to do these things. But as being adopted into the, into the family, 
there are still expectations upon us. We expect our kids to behave in a certain way. We expect our kids to live a certain way. And it's, we're not trying to ruin their fun, but we want the best for them. We want their, their safety for them. And we are children of God, and He wants the same thing for us, which is why He leads us by His Spirit. This isn't slavery that, that we, we, we behave out of fear, but, but we live out of respect and out of love and out of thankfulness for what He's done for us. And then it says that the Spirit Himself, the Holy Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. You know, many people think that the, the Spirit is this, uh, I, don't, I don't know, just some sort of force. You know, the Holy Spirit is a force. But it's not as a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. You know, in Roman law, for, for an adoption to take place, you had to have a witness. And it says here that the Spirit Himself is our witness that we are adopted into, into the family of God. And it doesn't say that he testifies to our spirit, but with our spirit, alongside our spirit, that we are children of God. And then it says, if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. You know that we are, as far as the kingdom of heaven is concerned, we're, Christ was the first of many. We're given all the same authority and, and, and privilege that Christ has given in the kingdom. It says, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Now this, if indeed here, is actually the Greek word, I think it's pronounced hyper, and it means if as is the fact. It's not a if indeed like it could happen, but it's if indeed like it has happened. This is, this is a fact that we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. And this suffering is, is a twofold thing as I look into it. First, we suffer by faith. How many know that, that none of you actually have to be crucified? None of you actually have to be whipped? None of you actually have to, to go through what he went through? We actually do that by faith. We, we, we participate in Christ's suffering by faith because he paid that price for us as a substitute. In the same way, we'll be glorified with him by faith as he was risen from the grave. So will we and we're glorified with him. But also, in this life, we're going to suffer in some of the same ways he did when we face persecutions in this life. John fifteen eighteen it says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. The truth is that we're going to face some things in this life just because we're Christians. And Paul goes on to say in, in Romans 8, 18-22, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed for us. The suffering to this present time, the, the persecutions that we go through and people are, are pushing against us, it's, it's nothing compared to the glory that's to be revealed. And the truth is, in the United States, we got it easy. I mean, we have no idea what real suffering and persecution is here. As we We've talked about briefly, and, and I, I still get emails about Pastor Saeed who's in a, an Iraqi prison. That man's being persecuted. That man's suffering. And even something that is that bad, the truth is that that's nothing compared to the glory that he will receive. You know, Paul went through far worse than any of us are ever going to have to go through. But he says, I consider these present sufferings nothing compared to the glory that's to come. It says, for the anxious longing of the creation 
waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. See, what happened was is the judgment that was passed on to Adam at the fall was actually passed on to the whole of creation. Adam wasn't the only one that's dying. Men and women aren't the only ones dying. But this worth, this, this worth, this world, this whole creation is suffering because of the sins of Adam. It was actually cursed alongside with him. And it says that it wasn't willingly. Didn't do it willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Because it was tied to Adam. Adam was actually the caretaker. Caretaker. I don't even know what I'm trying to say. Caretaker. <laughs> it was the caretaker of this world. And when he fell, all of, all of creation was, was, was cursed with him. And because of this, we find that all of creation is waiting eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. You know, this eagerly awaits right here, or, or waiting eagerly, occurs seven times in the New Testament, and all of it refers to Christ's return. You know, it's waiting in hope that when the sons of God are revealed, when Christ comes back, that all of creation will be set free as well. The earth will be remade, and it will no longer be subject to, to the, the pain of, and sting of death. The sin won't be able to corrupt this world any longer. It says, right now, all of creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth. You know, the truth is that when you're having a baby, at least I've been told this, I haven't actually had a baby myself, but you're in pain when it's happening. It's not something, I mean, this isn't... But when it's all done, you forget about the pain. When you look into your baby's eyes, you don't think about the pain anymore. And that's what the earth is going through right now. It's, it's in pain, but it's waiting for, for, the, for Christ to return so that that can be done and it can be made new along with us. In Romans 8, 23-25, it says, And not only this, but we also, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoptions as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what it already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. You know, we recall as we're looking at this scripture, the scripture before is talking about we're waiting for, for the glory that's to be revealed to us. It's Christ's return. And we have the first fruit of the Spirit. What it's talking about here is, is, is we have received the Holy Spirit inside of us. We've been saved. We received the, the first part of our inheritance is, is Christ coming to live inside of us. But we're ultimately waiting for the, the, the end result, the ultimate result of adoption as sons is the redemption of our body when Christ returns. When, we're all, when our, our bodies are raised up and we're taken into heaven and we're given a new body and we live in, in heaven without pain or sickness or death and, and there's, that's our full inheritance. And this is why we still hope. You know, if we had everything in full, in full now, we wouldn't need to hope anymore. That's what he's saying here. If, if you already have it, why would you hope for it? Why would you need to place your trust in that but the truth is that that we're on our way to heaven and in heaven our bodies are made new and 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 that is the 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 full inheritance that we're given through christ 
Now, let's be clear, though. We are waiting for Christ's return and, and hope we look forward to, to none of the hindrances of sin. We, we look forward to having a body that doesn't die and being in heaven where there's no pain and sickness or tears. But the truth is that we're not just sitting here waiting to get to heaven one day. That's not what we're called to. That's not what we're here for. It's just to, to sit and wait. Even though we are waiting to get to heaven someday, the truth is we can actually have a little bit of heaven right now with us today. The world around us is dying, but we've been given the authority, even in this earth, to make a difference. We've been given power to make a difference. We can have that power right now, even today. We don't have to wait till we get to heaven to, to have health in our body, to have uh, a righteous life being lived. We can claim that now. You know, we're not just waiting until our death or until Jesus returns, but we're living until that time. Amen? In Romans 8, 26-27, we find that the Spirit intercedes for us as well. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You know, the truth is that sometimes we just don't know how to pray how we should. We don't know, we don't have the words to say. We don't, we don't, we're, we're uh, not inefficient, but we're just uh, inadequate in many ways when we pray. So when we don't know what to pray or who to pray for, when this happens, pray in the Spirit. The Bible says that the, the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. When you, when you pray in tongues, when you pray in the Spirit, by faith, the Holy Spirit is interceding for you. In verse 27, it says that even though we don't understand, when we pray in tongues, we don't understand what we're saying. The Bible says that, uh, that it's not to edify us, but it edifies our spirit when we pray in tongues. But it does say that God knows. Because He knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Because it's His Spirit. And when the Spirit prays for us, it's according to the will of God. Right here says that the Spirit, because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And why is that important? You remember in John, in 1 John 5, 14 through 15, it says, This is the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. You can be certain when you pray in tongues that whatever you're praying is according to the will of God, and that God is going to hear it and answer it. You know, you're never going to have those, those weird prayers that are like, Oh Lord, please let uh, Paris be the capital of England. You know, that's a, that's a prayer that's not going to get answered. Not quite according to the will of God. Oh Lord, please let me have my neighbor's wife. Not really according to the will of God. You're not going to have that one answered. But when you, when you pray in the Spirit, it's always according to the will of God. You know, there's things in your lives that are being taken care of when you pray in the Spirit, if you do so, that you didn't even know were an issue. You're going to get to heaven one day and find out that you were praying for stuff and, and, and God answered prayers that you, you didn't understand but you'll be able to look back and see the impact that it made in your lives. In Romans 8, 28 through 30, it says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Highlight this one in your Bible, underline it, start memorizing it, this one. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. What it doesn't say is that God causes all things to be good. Or rather, God causes all things. It doesn't say God causes all things. God's not the one that's making bad things happen in your life. 
but he will cause those things to work together for good in your life. In John 10.10 it says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. You know, if, if something in your life is stealing, killing, and destroying, it's from the enemy, not from God. But I praise God he can still cause it to work for good in your life. What the enemy meant for harm, God will make for good in your life. And it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. You know, God knew every single one of us before we were ever born, before the creation of the world, he knew you. The Bible says that he foreknew you. And it says he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Predestined is just another word for predesigned. You know, it's not, there's not a subset of, subset of people that God picked out beforehand that are predesigned or predestined to be saved and everybody else is just left out in the cold. There's nothing they can do. We were all predestined or predesigned to be conformed to the image of his son. Matter of fact, man was created in that image, the image of God, and, and Adam fell and corrupted that image, but Christ came to restore that image to each and every single one of us. And how do we know it's for everybody and not just some small predestined group? That's not what he's trying to say here. Well, in Romans 5.8 it says, But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Well, guess who was yet sinners before Christ came? Everybody. Christ died for all of us that were sinners. It says that Christ is the firstborn of many brethren, which is all of us. In Ephesians 1.5 it says, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Now the truth is that we are pre-designed to be conformed to the image of the Son. Every single one of us has been created to be made like Jesus Christ, to be saved. God wants us, wants none should perish, but all of us would come to the love of Christ. And as we're conformed to the image of his Son, we're called, and when we're called, then we're justified, and then we're glorified in his, in his Son. This is an incredible thing because it's all a gift. We don't do anything to earn it, but it's all a gift according to his love. That we would become like his son, the firstborn. His son is the firstborn among many brethren, which is all of us. Romans 8, 31 through 36, it says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? That's another one. Underline and write down. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring us a charge? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day. We were considered sleep to be slaughtered. Sleep, considered sheep to be slaughtered. Yeah, man. So what shall we say to all these things? I'd like to start with hallelujah and praise God. You know, the truth is that God was willing to give even his own son for us. It says, he who did not spare his own son, but to be deliver over, delivered him over for us all, how will we not also with him freely give us all things. 
Jesus made the same argument in Matthew 6, 26 through 30. It says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies in the field grow, and they do not toil nor the spin. Yes, I say to you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown in the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? See, the truth is that if God is willing to do this for us, how much more so is he willing to give us all these things in his Son? God's not holding back anything for you today. God has given you everything. And then I like this part here. It says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Because God is the one who justifies. You know, that's something to, to keep in your mind when the enemy comes at you accusing. Who are you to bring a charge against one of God's elect? God is the one who justified me. God is the one who made me pure and holy. You don't have the right to condemn me. You don't have the right to point a finger at me because God, the highest authority, justified me. You know, there's not, another, there's not a higher court. It's not like when a, small, when a small court passes something through and they take it up to the next highest court, to the next highest court, to the Supreme Court so it can be overturned. The truth is that God is the Supreme Court. There's nothing higher. What he says cannot be overturned, no matter what somebody's saying. When God says you're justified and you're clean and you're made righteous, that can't be changed. When the enemy comes to you and tries to tell you something different, just look at him and say, who are you to bring a charge against God's elect? We also find that Jesus intercedes for us, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. The truth is that, that he, Jesus represents us before the Father. When we go to God, he doesn't see us, he sees his Son, because it's his life inside of us. And finally, we find out that nothing can separate us from the love of God that he has shown us. No matter what happens, that love is unbreakable, it's incorruptible, it's unshakable, and it's unstoppable. There is nothing. This whole list of things, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril of the sword, none of those things can separate us from the love of Christ. And we'll go ahead and end on this verse as we come in towards the end here. Romans eight thirty-seven through 39 says, But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ our Lord. In Jesus Christ, we are victorious. We are not just regular conquerors, but we overwhelmingly conquer everything through Him who loved us. In 1 John 4.4, 4, John writes, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The truth is, because Christ lives inside of us, we're victorious against everything that comes against us. Any, anything that, that old man that tries to come against us, we are victorious in that. When, when old sins try to rear their ugly heads, we are victorious in them. Because greater is he that is in us than he who is in this world. And all these things we overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. And then once again, he lays out his list of things that would have the possibility of coming between you and God. Death, life, angels, principalities, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, or any other created thing. But he says, I'm convinced that 
none of these things is able to separate us from the love of God. You know, Paul pretty much listed every possibility. There's nothing left that they could come in and separate us from the love of God. And I thank God for that. I thank God that his love for us is so great. It's so incorruptible, so unshakable, so powerful, and it's so abundant for us. And I thank God that no matter what happens in this life, that when you are saved, that you are, you are one of his and nothing can separate you from him. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Let's go ahead and uh, stand to our feet. We're going to pray and end the service.